Hello friends, thanks for tuning in. It has been a while since I've recorded a proper podcast. Um, In that time, I have been doing a lot of soul searching, a lot of uh, structure, um, organizing, um, just, you know, human life requires infrastructure. Um, So this podcast is probably going to be a a smorgasbord of a bunch of different things. Um, uh, One of the reasons I I am recording this podcast is because um, I recently got a new friend who started listening through all of my podcasts, and she told me one of her favorite ones was the randomness podcast that I posted. So I'm glad that that helped her, because otherwise I probably would have archived it at some point, thinking like, oh... There can't be anything useful on this on here. I'm just talking about randomness. Well, it actually was randomly useful. So, uh, here we are. And um, one of the first things that I want to talk about is um, God has been convicting me about pride. And sort of a beautiful story. And the thing about stories is that, you know, there's kind of like, multiple timelines depending on the people who experience them. So I think of the story as like a, a a ball of thread that's kind of like woven into itself and it kind of forms this Celtic knot. So I struggle to tell stories because I'm trying to find the best place to start as I explore the Celtic knot in a linear fashion because that's the only way you can communicate information is one piece at a time, one image at a time, One sentence, one phrase, one word at a time. One idea at a time. Because five ideas at a time is really, really difficult. And that's why people write novels or create movies. So that they can, like, tap into that subconscious and have multiple layers. But that's why it's called an art form. And storytelling is an art form. So, with that, I'm going to tell you the story about how God convicted me of pride. So... Independently of me, one morning, one of my friends was just praying for me so hard about this specific topic. And later on, she noticed I posted on Instagram stories that I said something about God convicting me about pride. And she was just so at peace seeing that, knowing that God was talking to me and I was hearing it and receiving it. So that is where our story begins, and I don't remember what morning that was. We didn't, I haven't gone back and figured out what day that was, or what it was exactly that I wrote in my stories, or whatever. Um, But I had this epiphany one morning that I want to help a lot of people. In order to do that, I need Holy Spirit power. In order to be trustworthy with Holy Spirit power, I need humility. And I need to be walking in holiness. And so just this this switch flipped in my mind about I need to be pursuing humility in the same way that I pursue Holy Spirit power and pursue holiness because... Um, I have been a Christian long enough to where I, I have a healthy distrust for my fellow believers and 
just because pride is so easy to creep in and um, it it's a it's a nasty little wrench in the gears so to speak and um, the it's it's insidious it it's it's like a weed that you have to keep uprooting and uh yeah so i've begun the journey of of aggressively um asking god to show me my pride and show me my sin and that's another that's another story i'll get to that um so my dear friend um ended up confronting me about a couple things where she noticed some pride and one of the way there was something I said offhand that really hurt her and I'm very thankful that she told me because it was arrogant and ignorant and those two are a, a terrible combination um and um <laughs> rather than you know, expose her and me and our friendship, I'm going to tell you about the thing that she confronted me on that was kind of like this little tiny detail, like, eh, that's kind of important. So, um, it wasn't like a big red problem. It wasn't even orange. It was like a yellow. But it was still important for her to confront me about. And the more I thought about it, the more, um conviction that I have about why that was wrong and so that's what I'm going to explain now is this little tidbit so where to begin for this episode of the story so um I don't know when you're you may be listening to this but we just in the entertainment world we just had the last season finale for the TV show Game of Thrones. Now, if you know anything about Game of Thrones, it is about justice for the Stark family and lots and lots of boobs. That's kind of the essence of the TV show. And, um, just, I... I became aware of the series while it was still a book, because I had family members who read it, um, and (laughs) I remember when they were sad because Ned Stark died, and it was kind of hilarious when the first season came out eight years ago now, and I was like, oh yeah, Ned Stark, that's Sean Bean, well, we all know how he's gonna end up. (sighs) Oh, I'm really getting off track here, I'm sorry. So, when Game of Thrones came out eight years ago, I knew what it was, and um, because I had family members read the books and tell me what it was about, and I was like, okay, I'm staying far away from that, thank you very much. So, fast forward, it's 2019, and um, I don't want anything to do with the TV series, and Um, I've got, you know, people I follow on Instagram who are tweeting about, tweeting about on Instagram. That's not how that works. 
<sighs> I've got folks on Instagram posting about it, you know, just acquaintances and like, all right, cool, whatever, you know, the occasional Instagram ad pop up or the little meme or whatever. Like, okay, all right, this is a thing, it's fine. Like, um, so one day, um, as season eight was gearing back up to start, um, one of my friends on Twitter tweeted something like, maybe it's my background, but I find Game of Thrones very triggering and she's been through a lot in her life. So that's a completely understandable statement for her. And, um, and, and one of the things she, she commented was, I don't judge people who watch that. And, um, I decided to reply that, and I think the specific phrasing I used was, I question the morality of the people who delight in that show. And that is factually true. Um, but just because it's factually true doesn't mean I need to say it on the internet. And it doesn't mean... Now, so here's here's what I did after that point, which was really passive-aggressive of me and arrogant and... I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm going to tell you. So I took a screenshot of that two, those two tweets, and I post them on my Instagram stories. Um, Passive-aggressively. I got... What was very interesting was that after I posted that, I got a couple of direct messages from some friends who agreed with me that we don't like Game of Thrones. But what I noticed was that the way that I phrased that and the way that I put it on the internet passive-aggressively, that action resulted in drawing out the self-righteousness of my friends who agreed with me. And by doing that, my, you know... My, you know, small act of pride incited their small acts of pride and further strengthened their judgmental attitudes. And um, um, the way that my friend phrased it when she was confronting me was, you know, there were things that I watched, you know, a few years ago that I can't watch now because I wasn't sensitive back then. And so, I feel sad that I did that specifically to try and, like, passive-aggressively communicate my opinion to someone who liked Game of Thrones. Um, That was really immature on my part. Um, Yikes. Yeah, that was really immature on my part, and I'm embarrassed to admit all this. But, you know, this is this is podcast land, and I'm here talking about how God has convicted me of pride, so a little discomfort comes with the territory. So all that to say, God is bringing up more and more little areas, and it's it's really good. It's so healthy. Um, a couple of years ago, God challenged me to ask him to actually sit down and ask him to show me my sin. 
And I was too scared to do that. And I told him that I was, I'm too scared to do that. The irony is that I, I've had, you know, quite a few painful, um, confrontations in my life. So that's not really something that I look forward to or seek out. Um, but with God, his confrontation really is the most gentle. There have been times where he's shown me things and I'll just curl up in the fetal position because I will feel so horrible as a person. And then he will show me that his grace is bigger and he will show me what I can do to the best of my ability to mend whatever it is if there's anything that can be done. Um... And so I've, now that it's been a couple years, I'm finally, I'm finally feeling brave enough to ask him, please show me my sin. Not that I'm doing that with like any regularity, like that would be really good and ideal, but, um, you know, the, this, this is all progress. As Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work in me will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's a work in progress, and I'm just trying to be, I'm just trying to to go along with the process, and not fight my maker with the way that I am meant to be. Um, Yeah, so one of the verses that has been really encouraging to me lately has been um, Psalm 37, verse 11. And I've known 37.4 for many, many years, and the entire chapter has been very comforting to me. But verse 11 has kind of hidden my under my radar for a long time. But this past couple of months, it's really come to the forefront of my inten- attention. And the verse goes like this. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in an abundance of peace. I don't know about you, but I desperately want more peace in my life. Desperately. And I'm, I am experiencing more peace than ever before, but I want an abundance of peace. I, and just on a practical level, um, I recently posted on Instagram um, you know, my root structure as a person involves having an organized closet with matching white plastic hangers, and there's a shelf in my bathroom that has all of my, um, dental cleaning supplies on it, because it keeps them from cluttering up the counter, number one, and number two, they're all easy access, so I have no excuse when I get up in the morning and my mouth tastes and smells like a compost bin because my intestines need, my, my microbes and my intestines need some, uh, tender loving care and some, uh, some, uh, what should we call it? Uh, in the landscaping business, I guess she would call it like cleaning out the dead stuff and pulling out the weeds and my microbes need to be weeded 
that's the best way I can say it. So my mouth tastes like compost and I've got this shelf on my wall that's got, you know, my toothpicks next to my uh, mechanical toothbrush, next to my tongue scraper, next to my little metal tongue, my little metal toothpick that gets the... I'm going way into detail here. I'm so sorry about that. You did not sign up to hear me talk about my dental processes. That's not what this podcast is about. Or is it? It's Meg living inside out. You're getting everything. But sincerely though, I my mom got me this little mental kind of like curved dental pick that dentists have or hygienists. It has pulled so much plaque out of the bottom of my teeth. Life-changing. Life-changing. I have not seen the dentist in like three years. I really need to go. Thankfully, cavities are not an issue for me so much, but I also make sure to floss and pull out my cock. Yeah, plaque, all that good stuff. And then I've got my my Q-tips and my cotton balls, and that's on that shelf, and it's part of my infrastructure, and it's easy access, and I don't have to think about it, and it's not stressful. And the same with my kitchen. I finally got my kitchen organized where... The things that I want are easy access. I've got all my prep dishes, easy access. I've got all my measuring spoons in one little bin that's easy to get to. And I've got my rice and beans on the top of the cabinet so I can measure those out. You know, like what, 12 pounds of beans and 20 pounds of rice, something like that. No, wait, 24 pounds of beans originally. Anyways, because it's good food and it's very cost effective and that's part of my infrastructure and it lives on top of my cabinet site and I pull out my two-step step stool and I climb up to that and I've got my beans and then I degas them with this awesome awesome hack from this blog don'twastethecrumbs.com and you look up beans and there it is recipe for how to degas beans and then you cook them and you freeze them and then you don't yeah it's wonderful so this is all part of my infrastructure where was I going before that? And I I remember a time in my life where I would walk through my apartment as a single person and I'd be like, oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to do this. I need to do this. And multiple times as I would walk through my apartment, I'd be reminded, oh, I need to do this. Oh, I need to do this. I need to. And that simple, that unfortunate process of being reminded every single time I saw those things, just it drove me in multiple directions. And it just exhausted me from being reminded of the things I needed to do. And I, in, in our current apartment, I kind of have all of the clutter bulldozed to one specific corner. Um, unfortunately, that is the watercolor desk corner. So I need to really work through this collection of stuff and put it figure out homes for it or get rid of it or find a purpose for it so that I can use my watercolor desk again because I have I have art to make I have art to make and you know I'm not getting any younger so <sighs> so I remember that season where for me just being at home was stressful because I was so exhausted, I could not create a calm environment. And now, finally, I am that much closer to living in a calm environment. And I was in my home the other day, and I was thinking to myself, I never feel stressed out like that 
in my home now. Thankfully, fun tangent, Ben and I have moved about, this is our third apartment uh, since we got married. And that was really funny how it all happened. So um, when we were engaged, I told him I am allergic to mold and I need you to never force me to live in a moldy environment. And his apartment at the time had mold, and I knew that, so that's why I said that. Um, After much discomfort, because Ben hates moving, he agreed to move into a different apartment. So we went apartment hunting, we picked one out, um, and it was a two-bedroom, two-bath. And then, um, so that was our first apartment for, oh gosh, first 10 months of our marriage. And then Ben had a job transition. And right around that same time, he asked if we could get ceiling fans installed because he has grown up with ceiling fans his entire life. It is very hot here in Alabama. And in that particular unit, they looked into the structure of of where we were in the building and all that sort of thing. And unfortunately, they could not install ceiling fans. And we had just renewed our lease for the next year. So Ben said, ah, well, in a year we'll move or something. I said to myself, wait a minute, they have a newer building on this property. I wonder what that looks like. So we, I look up the newer building in our apartment complex. That was a Sunday night. We saw it. Monday at noon, we saw an empty two-bedroom, two-bath apartment Monday at noon, and we agreed to move on Tuesday. Now, it was a few hundred dollars more expensive, but again, he just had that job transition, so we were able to afford a larger apartment. We moved in two weeks. (laughs) It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Um, But I got, I remember the one day I packed all my child into the car, rolled it down the hill to the other building, and unpacked it. Oh my gosh, my knees hurt so bad, because it was a second floor apartment. Which worked out very nicely, because we have our privacy, and we people don't walk past, and that sort of thing. So, second floor was definitely the way to go, and we're not on the f- third floor, which is hotter and higher up. So, we move into a nicer two-bedroom, two-bath apartment with ceiling fans. Around fall of 2018, I convinced Ben to share a bathroom. At this point, I was able to organize my stuff so that I could do my makeup, do my hair, and put everything away, and the counter would not be cluttered. So Ben agreed to share a bathroom with me, mostly because I did not want to clean a second bathroom. And just seeing red growth build up on the tile in the other shower just grossed me out so with much controlling he agreed to share a bathroom and that was wonderful november of that year we sold my car it was kind of out of the blue we'd thought about it for a while and then a church friend said hey are you still interested in selling your car and they needed one for their um their teenage daughter and uh, they came to look at it and they drove away with the car. So, um, so we went from being two bedroom, two bath, two vehicles 
to two bedrooms, one bath, one vehicle. I think you know where this is going. Did I mention that we, this is our third apartment and I've only told you about two? So, I was getting ready to install a, a towel holder in our, the one bathroom that we used. And I was about to put it in. Maybe I told you the story already. I'm sorry. Skip forward if I did. Um, I was about to put it in and I kind of heard the Holy Spirit tell me, and eh, don't worry about that. You're not going to be in this apartment very long anyways. And I kind of looked up at God and I said, what are you talking about? We've only been here for seven months. This, what are you talking about? Either that night or the night after, Ben said to me, you know, I'm really not sure about staying in this apartment. I mean, we could be saving so much more if we were somewhere smaller. And, um, you know, especially if we want to start saving for a house. I heard the two most important people in my life tell me, you should go look for another apartment. Hmm, alrighty then. Well, it was about January of 2019 at this point, and uh, I thought, I just need to start looking. Like, we're in this lease, but I need to start looking. Let me see what else is available in this new building that we're in. I know they've got one-bedroom apartments. So I go on the website, I look, we look at the layout. Hmm, that's not bad. I mean, there's a lot less storage. And then I look at the number, and it's one number different from ours. And then I remember that the girl who was in the apartment directly across from us moved out right at New Year's. After two, after a little bit of time and me busting my butt to purge stuff, because I realized if I get rid of, if I minimize my possessions, I can save Ben and I money and we can, we will be that much closer to saving to get in a house. That motivated me. I threw away eyeshadow palettes that I had not used in years. My, at this point, my makeup fits in like a nine by six inch little plastic display case. It's crazy. Like I used to have a whole kabuki full of makeup. The kabuki full of makeup? The kabuki that, not a kabuki, caboodle. Yeah, makeup caboodle. Kabuki is the brush. I can't talk. It's been one of those days, but I'm talking. Here we are. The caboodle that used to hold all my makeup is now holding the apothecary. It is the medicine cabinet. It's wonderful. It has those like little things that open up to the sides. Dudes, if you, yeah, just Google, Google a, a makeup caboodle and it'll, you'll see like it has this thing where it, it's like a fishing thing where you've got those multiple compartments. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Perfect for holding apothecary stuff. So, I busted my butt to minimize my stuff and get Ben on board with downsizing to a one-bedroom apartment. He's not on board with it all of a sudden because he's like, I'm comfortable in our two-bedroom apartment. There's a door between my desk and the living room and the kitchen and living area. Um, 
by the grace of God, we are now in a one-bedroom, one-bath apartment, and we are saving almost $300 compared to the last apartment we were in. So that worked out very, very well, and we are saving for a house, and it's very exciting because we are, well, we've almost met our emergency fund savings, and we are now saving for a house. So that is very exciting. We're close to it. You know what I mean. That's the really long version of um, our apartment story, and I forget why I was telling you that, but here we are. And so, in the course of moving into this 865 square foot apartment, which has, oh my gosh, this is, like, we loved our last apartment that was really nice and two bedrooms. This is smaller, but it's so much better. And we just feel so at home here. And my porch is larger. We've got big windows that fill the living area with natural light. It's just, it's awesome. It is so awesome. I am so thankful for a home where I just feel comfortable and safe. And yes, I need to clean mildew out of the shower every so often and caulk the grout where it's slightly missing. But I, I can deal with that. I can breathe and... Um, and we're finding places for everything to fit. Like, this is forcing us. Ben wanted to do, um, a Con Marie, which is, if you've not heard it, um, Con Marie is the, the life-changing magic of tidying up. And now he has done that process twice. Before he met me, he did it in 2016 and 2017. He got rid of half his possessions each time. And then had 25%. And his stuff was so organized and amazing. So all that to tell you, when I was living in Florida, I had all this extra stuff that I accumulated in my single years. I had bits of paper in different gift bags with things that I'd thought of and was processing. And I, I went through... A whole bunch of those and I typed up the things I wanted to keep and I threw out the things that were already deeply ingrained in my my knowledge bank and uh yeah that was that was rewarding but we there was so much stuff that I have pitched or donated mostly donated because that's how I roll um, I have donated donated so much stuff since moving to Alabama in the course of all three of these apartments and living with his parents before then. I was donating, pitching stuff. So I'm very, very thankful to be in an apartment where I feel at home that is forcing me to really evaluate the things that I need and the things that I don't because otherwise you just it just builds up and I know my parents have boxes in the basement from their college days that they literally have not looked at in 30 years so I think they're starting to look at them because they're getting ready to move but it you know what I mean and if if you if you are a family at all you you know what i mean so 
If you've lived in one place for a long time, you know what I mean. And so those three moves really forced us to lighten our load each time. And it was just a really, really healthy process. And Ben wanted to do the Conmarie tidying process with me while we were still in the two-bedroom comfortable apartment. We had a walk-in pantry, you guys. It was nuts. Here, my pantry is like an eighth of that size, but it's working. And I've got all my rice and beans on top of the cabinets, so it's it's working. Um, I, since moving into the one-bedroom apartment, I've gotten rid of so much stuff. It's been just so freeing. And so I know that I know that when I finally get the the last of the bulldozed clutter out from <laughs> exercised um, from the watercolor desk area, it will be so freeing and so wonderful. I'm very very pumped to make that happen, and it will it will actually be really weird for me to live without clutter. Like that's just that's that's almost an anomaly for me because of. Clutter has been my normal growing up, but clutter also creates stress. I'm in a place in my life where I need to minimize as much stress as possible. So to come back to what inspired this tangent, Psalm 37 verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in an abundance of peace. So the two prongs of that are I'm working on humility and I am working on purging my stuff to create peace in my home and I've got night lights with little switches underneath my kitchen cabinets and it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Highly recommend it. That's 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 my homemaking tangent for you all. Yeah. So, um to get back slightly under the original thread of God convicting me of pride, um, let's see, I, I was driving in our one car one day, I had just dropped Ben off at work after lunch, um, he li- he works pretty close to where we are, so that really helps, it means that I can, I can take the car, um, for half the day, and we can also coordinate eating lunch together and stuff like that, so it definitely makes life a lot easier, it would be very difficult to do a one car, uh, scenario without that. So I just dropped Ben off at work, and I was driving to whatever errand I was going to do, and it was a, huh, okay, important context as I explain embarrassing parts of my life. So, uh, and my, my husband doesn't know this either, so he's going to find out while he listens to the podcast, because that, that's, that's how we roll sometimes. Okay, here we go. So I was driving down the stretch of road, and it's not even road, it's, it's more of like a, an exit outlet for the building complex. So we don't even have like dashes on the road. It's just nicely paved, but there's no marks or anything because they didn't bother because you know which side is right and which side is left. And so there's no one on this road. I am the only person on this little outlet road and it's very quiet. So I've got good visibility and I can see who is coming, who's behind me. There's no one here. So while I'm driving on this very safe, tiny little stretch of business complex outlet road 
I take both hands off the steering wheel and I stretch them out to the side and I've got the windows down. I'm just like smiling and I'm enjoying life. And I drive forward, you know, 10, 15 feet maybe. And then I put the hands back on my wheel and I look at the, at the intersection of the main road and I decide to join traffic. And, and the Holy Spirit knocks on my heart and says, that's pride. And I sit there and I think to myself, yeah, you're right, God. That, that's pride. That's pride. And the essence of what he was telling me is that um, I pride myself on being brave or something. I don't, I don't need, it sounds stupid because it is stupid. I pride myself on doing impractical things in safe situations, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, I mean, there are people who pride themselves on doing impractical things in unsafe situations. So, I guess, I keep asking God to give me safe places to fail, which is basically, give me mini scenarios where I can, like, trip and... That way, I don't have to waste a lot of time, like, completely skinning on my knees and falling on my face. And I can learn my lesson the easy way, as opposed to learning it the hard way. So please give me safe places to fail. Um, and there is a verse... There's a couple of verses, and I confuse them all the time. Um, Though the righteous man stumbles seven times... Still, I will uphold him. And I believe that's in the Psalms. It might be in Psalm 23. Let me, let me wander over here and find my Bible real quick. So, um, so that was that moment for me where I, I was in a safe scenario. And I was demonstrating my pride. And the Holy Spirit knocked and said, eh, that's not acceptable. You can't do that anymore. I'm like... Oh, oh, so, uh, yeah, so that's one example of how God is telling me more about my pride issue, and it's, uh, it's very good, very helpful, really, really changing the way I see the world, um, yeah, okay, so Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Yeah, there's another section somewhere where it talks about falling seven times. But I'm... Honestly, I think this verse is good enough for what I'm talking about right now. So that's what we're going to go with. Yeah, learning the Bible is just this constant process of, like... The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And just constantly trying to immerse yourself in it. And um, not feel guilty that you can't get it all at once. I mean, the essence of the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. He wants to adopt us as his family. He chose us. We choose him. We love him through our obedience. So there, there is first... This, this love we receive from Christ. And then when that 
changes our identity, then it changes our action. And our action proves that we've received God's love. It proves our relationship. It is the evidence. It is the fruit. Yeah. And then love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And that's all possible by first receiving God's love that is poured out through the Holy Spirit. Who's been given to us. Romans 5.5. 5. Yeah. Good stuff. So, um, so yeah, my life is filled with those moments now, which is just like, hey, mm, you can't do that. That little phrase you said there, mm, that's not good. That attitude, oh my gosh. Okay, so I have a serious attitude problem. Um, okay, I need a therapy session for a second. Please, please forgive me. I feel like I need intro music for like a special episode of, hi, I'm, this is my podcast and I'm going to use it as therapy for a second while I talk out loud and process my hurt. Yeah, I have not done that before in the podcast ever. Yes, I have. Okay, so. (laughs) So, there is this culture. Um, and... I mostly see it among women, although it's definitely prevalent for men too. And it's kind of this whole culture of just like intentionally portraying yourself away on certain media. It's it's the facade culture. And it's not even on social media. Like I see it in real life too. It's like there are women who I don't know how to relate to because they just don't seem genuine. Does that make any sense? And I have been so blessed to have friends who have kind of kind of grown up in that mindset and have helped me understand it some, but I am still struggling. And I finally had this thought the other day of like, what did this facade culture ever do to me? Like, did they hurt me in some way? Because the judgmental attitude that I have toward it is uncalled for. My attitude is wrong. Like, yes, I absolutely believe in being genuine and authentic. Um, but... I'm not the person to set that standard for someone else. By no means. In no way. Like, that is total arrogance on my part. Again, this is the podcast where Meg talks about God convicting her of pride. So I'm taking pride in my vulnerability, in my authenticity. Like, ew. So now I'm actually practicing my authenticity by telling you about the pride that I took in my authenticity. Full circle. Is it coming with discomfort? Yes, it is. Here we are. So I don't really understand this culture of this is the facade, this is what I'm going to put out there, and I only tell... I just... 
God is showing me bits and pieces to help me understand. And a really big piece of the puzzle that I got so far was when we went to see the Tolkien movie a couple weeks ago. Ben and I rarely go to see movies together because I'm not really a big movie person. I'm very picky about the stories I decide to ingest into my soul. But Tolkien was well worth it. And I really enjoyed that movie. Really difficult and intense at times, but um, I liked it. Um, I definitely liked it. So, there is a character in the movie, and it is the mother of Tolkien's best friend. And um, this particular best friend was the first person to welcome him at boarding school. So Tolkien was an orphan, so that was a really, really big deal. Um, So this friend was like a brother to him. So this is... uh, uh, Jeffrey Smith is the name of the friend. So, in the course of the movie, you interact a little bit with Jeff... You. This is not a video game. This is a movie. In the course of the movie, Tolkien interacts with Jeffrey's mother. Just a little bit. And... She just has this really thick, high wall. She's part of the aristocracy. And she's... She's married to a man with money, and they have a image to present because that's what they do. That's what they have to do. Otherwise, people talk about them behind their back. So later on in the movie, uh, Jeffrey Smith actually dies in World War I. Along with Tolkien's other closest friend. Spoiler alert. I know. World War I sucks. Man. There were... There, it, uh, there were significant points in the movie where I was crying into Ben's shoulder, having to remind myself about the sovereignty of God and that he chooses us before we choose him. So everyone that is meant to be in heaven is going to be there and... We don't get to decide that. We get to choose how we respond to God's love for us. And while our obedience may help our brothers and sisters experience the love of God better, it does no way determine if they actually make it there. Like, that gives me huge comfort in my life. Because otherwise, I, before that, I was significantly motivated by guilt to witness to people. And that's just not how that works. They will know you by your love, not by your guilt-tripped, motivated witnessing. Big theological tangent there, but that was the, that was, that was where I had to go in my head to comfort myself when Jeffrey Smith died in the Tolkien movie. So, really good movie. Definitely messed me up, but definitely the tear fest that I needed that week. Anyways, so later on in the movie... Tolkien reaches out to Mrs. Smith. And he invites her to the tea parlor where he and her son spend a lot of time. He says, you know, this is the seat where Jeffrey sat. And 
um, so-and-so sat there and Christopher sat there. And, and at one point in their action, um, Jeffrey's mother says to Tolkien, you know, I never really got to know Jeffrey the way that I wanted to. Was, and then she, the first, maybe the second question out of her mouth was, did he know love? That scene rocked my world. Here is a family that is so prioritized their social status, their image, all in the name of sustaining whatever business ventures that they have that depend on that. And at the and the cost of that is that they sent their son to school so early the mother barely knew her son. Wow. So when I think about this whole facade culture, I now think about Mrs. Smith. And maybe she chose it. Maybe she was raised in it and she didn't have a choice. But, I mean, the unfortunate truth is that people with money don't necessarily want their children to associate with people who don't have money because they don't want their children adopting a poverty mindset. They don't want their children adopting a short-term, hand-to-mouth mindset. And I'm going to tangent here on this because that's what I do. My father-in-law one of the many things that he does is financial counseling. And he says very often we, we have two things. We have bread and we have seed. And oftentimes we want to be generous. And so we will give people our bread and we will eat our seed. But to truly be generous in the long term, we have to take care of ourselves first. And we are supposed to eat our bread and sow our seed. I don't know if that made sense, but um, the photographer who did our wedding is in the top 5% of all wedding photographers in Alabama. They're very, very good. And she does high-end weddings for high-end clients. So designer dresses, $100,000 budget plus. These are people who have dedicated savings accounts for their child's wedding beyond just like beyond their college fund or what have you money lots of money one of the things that she said was that these people have a great deal of self-control and so From Mrs. Smith's perspective, I understand why she wouldn't want her son associating with the run of the mill in their town because 
the run-of-the-mill children in the town know who they are. And the unfortunate truth is that people are selfish. You know, watch any... Watch any documentary on a lottery winner, and there is this very painful truth that lottery winners quickly find out who their friends are and aren't, because they will get hit with lawsuits out of nowhere, and people will ask them for money shamelessly and expect them to pay for stuff, and it's like, well, are you really my friend, or are you using my friend, our friendship for my money? People are very selfish, and it sucks. So that's why rich people, that's one of the reasons why rich people don't associate naturally with poor people, and it's very difficult. And that's why the beauty of the church is that Paul challenges the rich to be wealthy in good deeds and to be generous. And the church is one of those beautiful places where the rich intermingle with the poor and we are all on the same level before God. And money is not the only resource in the world. There is emotional stability. There is wisdom. There is knowledge. And so even though I have a friend who's very well off and she's very generous. And even though I can't give to her in the same way that she gives to me, I do on occasion one, but also I try to do acts of service and I try to help her out. And I, I do the same way for my other friends who don't have as much. So I just, I'm also a married woman with no children. So I have this resource of time and homemaking energy that my my friends who are mothers with children do not have by any means so we we share our resources and some people have time and some people have money and energy is its resource if you have the people with chronic illnesses know that better than anyone energy is a precious precious resource and gary vaynerchuk needs to not take it for granted bless that dude so also casey neistat what is that man made of just boggles my mind. His biochemistry is off the charts. Can't even... I don't get it. And he eats crap. (laughs) Uh, Here we are. But... So, Mrs. Smith and just understanding her socioeconomic situation really helped me to start understand the facade culture and why it's so prevalent. And I truly believe there's, there's, there's no culture in the world that is, is, um, uh, immune to it. I mean, every, every aristocracy in the world, you know, wants people to see them a certain way. And that's, that's how we are as humans. Um, so, if you want to pray for me, that's definitely something I need prayer for because my attitude right now is not acceptable and I, I need to sit before God and ask him to sift me and, and help me understand my motives, help me deal with whatever hurts going on because 
I I need to change. I need to change. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And having a judgmental attitude is... Is very prideful. It's one thing... It's one thing to say... This was mind-blowing to me. Was to be able to honestly assess... That person is lazy. Straight up lazy. And I'm, I'm thinking of... A particular coworker I had... In one of the many jobs that I had. So... And just... I... Oh gosh, that one too. Yeah, you know, there there are people in the world who I have no respect for. Um, I've thought about tweeting this next phrase, but it, it I think it's better in the context of the podcast. My faith in humanity has... continues to reach healthy lows. <laughs> Because humanity is is horrible. Left to our own devices, humanity is not trustworthy at all. I did tweet one time, you know, how much can God trust you? It didn't get very many likes because people weren't very enthusiastic about it because it, it challenged them. So, yeah, but sometimes I need to tweet the hard things. So, yeah. Sometimes you need to say the hard things, but then how do you say it? When do you say it? In what context? With what tone of voice? What attitude have you prepared in your mind before you say the hard things? It all matters. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, it's been, it's been pretty exciting here the, uh, the past few months. Um, a while back, I asked God, you know... Eventually, at some point, I'm going to have more people listening to me and, uh, like, I'm not going to be able to connect with individuals as much as I I would like to. Um, so, please, God, please bring the women into my life who I'm supposed to connect to and really build a friendship with. Not only did God bring new and different women into my life, he also responded by taking some out. And this has been a very interesting process. I, uh, I've gone through quite a few... Um, confrontational discussions in the past couple of months. So that's been pretty difficult. Um, But here's the thing. Yeah, alright, I'm going to tell this story. I can't believe I'm telling this story, but we're going to tell this story. So, um... A number of years ago... I was attending Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And Pastor Bob Coy at the time... 
was, unbeknownst to the church, having multiple affairs on his wife. And I've spoken about this in a YouTube video, actually. Um, And I didn't even have the full correct information at that time. But, uh, yeah. So, he... I still stand by what I said. I just wasn't fully informed. Um, So he was having multiple affairs. And, you know, I didn't know this. I did not know this. I'm I'm just like the rest of the congregation. I show up. I see him from a distance. You know, that's pretty much the extent. I did volunteer with various ministries. And because of that, I did end up meeting him and got to know him. And he was a cool dude. Um... But that was before this particular season. Um, So. Towards the end. And I didn't know this. But towards the end of his pastoral leadership at Calvary Chapel. um, There was one sermon where something he said just made me very, very angry. And. I knew that something was off and something was seriously wrong. Um, and I I basically stormed out of the sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think my friend would agree with that. My friend who was there at the time. Um, so... And one thing that I noticed was that you know, whenever I heard Pastor Bob preach, there was never any power in his sermons. But the but the sermons that really impacted me, I'm sorry, grammar people, if I don't if I'm not using that word properly, the sermons that really affected me were by Pastor Doug Souter. And I found myself tweeting Pastor Doug on a fairly regular basis whenever he preached. Fast forward to my friend texts me and says, don't get on social media. Come hang out with us. We have to tell you something. I was like, okay. Well, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale was a big deal. Uh, it's, a big, it's a big church in, the, uh, in America. So stuff like that is national news. So I went over to their house um, after I'd been busy with a thing I was doing for dance. And um, they told me, you know, Pastor Bob um, is no longer a pastor. And uh, he was having an affair and he's gone. And my immediate reaction to that was relief just complete relief. They thought I was going to be disappointed because I really appreciated Pastor Bob, and I still do. Um, but at that particular point, I, uh, hi, Ben. Bye, Ben. At that particular point, I could tell that something was so off with his heart that I was relieved to know that he was gone. And if if I had known more about various things that were happening behind the scenes with ministry, I actually would have left the church. 
I, I would have, um, because I just, I just couldn't do it. Um, thankfully, I didn't find that out until after the fact, and I stayed with Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale because my relationship with the family of Christ is not going to be determined by a single leader. Um, and that was, that was the right place for me to stay. Um, and, uh, it was a really painful process to watch the staff start to detox some of start to detox from the narcissism that had been trickling down. Just, I remember one of the things that Pastor Bob didn't like was having a water bottle up on stage at all or ever drinking from any water during the sermon. And that was one of his policies for the rest of the teaching staff. I distinctly remember when after he left the associate pastor one of his very best friends the man who helped found that church with him pastor fidel once one time when he preached he not only did he have a water bottle up on stage he set it on the podium so that it was visible the entire sermon completely counter to the previous, you know, standard. And I, because I knew about that policy, because of volunteering in the video department, I recognized that small little act for everything that it represented. And it was... It was really sad. It was really sad. Um, so I say that, I share that story as a context for what I'm about to say, which is sometimes God gives us spiritual insight into the heart attitudes of other people. And I am starting to learn that just because I have that insight doesn't mean that I'm necessarily called to do anything about it, (laughs) which is really hard, except for pray, which is really hard because it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith to believe that just talking to God about whatever it is that you're picking up or reading on a certain person is going to be enough. Um, and I'm, I'm been very encouraged to have discovered Isaiah 58, which is a, it is a chapter where God challenges people about doing religious things for the show of it. And he turns around, he says, this is the fast that I have chosen that I may bring your healing forth speedily. And it's such a beautiful chapter. You know, I need I just need to read the whole, read you the whole thing cuz it's so gorgeous. Oh my gosh. 
<sighs> yes. Isaiah 58. I, I have, I am on YouTube crying about the power of fasting back in 2012. So I'm on the record of caring about fasting. Like this is so, so important to me. And it's just, I know that it's so powerful for just the healing of the body of Christ. And it tears me up that my fellow believers don't necessarily take it seriously. So, um, while I'm flipping to Isaiah 58, okay, do, 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 there we are. Oh, do, 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 do. Oh, I had a bookmark in it. Well, that helps. <laughs> So sometimes just because I know about someone's heart attitude doesn't mean I'm supposed to do anything about it. But I am called to pray. And this is Isaiah 58. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness, and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Quote, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure. And exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day, to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush, and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this fast an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him and not hide your flesh from from your own and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Sorry, I messed up the words there because God was convicting me of someone that I need to love more intentionally. So, sorry about that. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noon day. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. 
You shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father." The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This chapter is so powerful. He specifically calls out religiosity with the wrong heart. He identifies the external behavior and then calls out the internal motives. He then changes his focus to define his own definition of fasting. It is for freedom. It is for nourishment. It is for community. It is for healing. It is for righteousness and renewed relationship. If you remove selfishness with generosity... Then you will have personal soul health, and then you will become a mender of community. The restorer of streets to dwell in. And some of you listening to this need to hear that. Cling to that. Because you live in streets that are unsafe to dwell in. And then he speaks about the Sabbath. What is Sabbath? He he says in the New Testament when speaking to the Pharisees that God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. God knows that we need rest. My footnote in my study Bible says that in regards to doing your own ways, finding your own pleasure, and speaking your own words, it says that their goals were social prestige, financial gain, and political importance. That is everything about facade culture that rubs me the wrong way. (laughs) But when we avoid trying to get ahead on what should be the day of rest, then we can delight ourselves in the Lord, ride on the high hills of the earth, and feast on the heritage of Jacob. Wow. Like, this, this just blows my mind. And that middle section, verse 10, um, 10 to 12, that's all about the, the, the heart issue. The pointing of the finger, the speaking witness, wickedness, and, it, and then if you remove the pointing of finger and the speaking of witness, wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness. This entire chapter is full of of if then if then and it's just it's just beautiful i've man when i found this last month i wrote 
so much up in this entire chapter. It was just so encouraging to me. Um, specifically because when I see heart issues, my first responsibility is to pray. Not tell my husband, not confront the person, not, you know, make a big scene. Although, at some point, I might be called to make a big scene. <laughs> I, I have. I can do it. I have done it. I'm going to do it again. But it's not the first response. The first response is prayer. So with that said, God started removing girlfriends from my life. I asked him, God, please bring girlfriends into my life who I am meant to be united with. And not only did he do that, he took out the girlfriends who had wrong heart issues. And in some cases, I didn't even, I couldn't even identify the actual attitude. I could just tell that something was there. And there's quite a few cases where I just kind of went quiet on people because I, I didn't have enough of a relationship to talk to them about it and so it's easier for me to just fade out and disappear and while I did give some friends the painful loving action of confronting them in those cases you know in some cases I confronted and it was really awkward but that was what they needed and in other cases I just disappeared. And, I mean, as I look back, I don't know what I would have done different. Um, I don't know that I would have done anything different. Um, yes, I could have been more gentle in a couple of scenarios. Um, in one specific scenario, the girl had was really offended at the way I confronted her. Um, but honestly, the more that God showed me about her heart attitude, the more I'm at peace with the way that it went, because the confrontation I gave her, while it wasn't specific to the heart issue, it was in proportion to it. And it's challenging, To be the person who is challenging to be the truth teller. Um, I don't like it. Sometimes I enjoy it too much. But then again, I'm taking... If I enjoy it... If I enjoy hurting people, telling them the truth, that's kind of a sign that I've got pride. So... Whenever I have detected that, because, believe me, I felt it, I'm kind of like, I'm actually kind of concerned. Like, God, this shouldn't feel good. Um, thankfully, I've had enough time thinking about all the different scenarios. And believe me, it's been the course of, oh gosh, two plus months. 
I've had enough time thinking about all the different scenarios that I finally made peace with. Um... my actions in the context of the situation. Um, Which is difficult because... Telling the truth unsettles feathers. And we as humans... We set up dysfunctional emotional economies based on our own balance of dysfunction. Let me break that down. That was really heady and cerebral. Um, so, a lot of time, dysfunction comes in pairs. And if it's in a family, then there's like an expected balance of this person does this, and this person does this, and this person persists, and I cope by doing this. And I take out my anger this way, and I do that. And I feel okay about expressing my anger immaturely because they express their anger immaturely, and that hurts me in this way. And they express their anger immaturely, and that hurts me in this way. So I feel okay about expressing my anger in this way. I don't feel like I'm hurting anyone unnecessarily, or they got what they come in. That wasn't proper grammar. Um, They deserve what they had coming, or what have you. And... A lot of times in those scenarios, we want to fix all the other people, which is natural because we can see, we can kind of see what's wrong. However, oftentimes our vision is clouded because we're so up close in it. And oftentimes we're blind to our own behavior and what is unacceptable. So... A lot of times, human relationships are very quid pro quo, utilitarian. I give you something, you give me something. I say nice things to you, you say nice things to me. I make you feel good about yourself, you make me feel good about myself. Now, some friendships can have enough healthy balance to... Make the most of, hey, I can help you through a tough time because you've deposited enough in my emotional bank account that you can make withdrawals for like two weeks, two months, and I will still be here for you. But the challenge is, if our relationships are only about, are only dependent on making the other person feel good, And don't get me wrong, like, it's important to show love in ways that people receive. Like, that is a skill. That is something that is learned. Like, I recently picked up a video game for the first time in years because it's something that I can do with my husband together and we can enjoy it together. And honestly, I'm having so much fun and it's relaxing. Um... Yeah, Factorio is definitely the right decision. Definitely the right life decision. And I'll let you know in a couple years if we're still playing it, but the developers are awesome. 
We're playing Beta 17, which is amazing. Um, yeah. So, and it's, it's one more thing for me to connect to with my husband. So, it's very important to find ways to love people that mean a lot to them. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about loving people with the intention of expecting them to give back. And I'm... I struggle with this so much. Because my heart does not generally... With, how do I say this? I am very good at making other people feel loved. But I'm very bad at receiving love myself. And I think it's because my standards for myself and how I show others love are the same standards that I have to receive love. That's not a bad thing. That's just how God made me. It's taken me a long, long, long time to accept that. It's not a bad thing to have high love receptors. It's just complicated. And so what I've realized is that I desperately need to seek out nature and beauty and creating beauty. And that is how I receive love from God. That is how he restores my soul. As he says in Psalm 23, I cling to the li- that line of that verse that he restores my soul Oh, good, glorious God, do I need that. So, with that said, the relationships that most, one of the relationships that greatly concerns me is codependent relationships where one person is kind of the controller and needs the validation of the the one being controlled. And, you know, this happens in male-female relationships. This happens in friendships. This happens in work environments. This happens in families. This happens between mother, daughter, grandparent, father-in-law. It, it happens. It, it sucks. The person controlling needs the obedience of the controlled in order for them to feel stable and powerful. And the person being controlled needs the guidance and instruction of the controller to tell them what to do because they are so... And I have been this person, so I'm trying to phrase this graciously because because they have such a lack of confidence because of their poor self-worth and so this codependency this this setup is a prime scenario for the controller to seek out the controlled and shower them with love and then demand that they love them back And then you get this cycle of, I make you feel good, you make me feel good. 
I make you feel good, you make me feel good. In that kind of relationship, there is no room for truth-telling. There is no room for vulnerability, except that it becomes taken advantage of. There is no room for confronting the other person and having it received because if the controller if the controller is confronted by the controlee the one underneath them then the controller responds with rage because they're not being obedient like they expected and their self-worth depends on that person's obedience i have good news for you folks God's self-worth does not depend on our obedience. I don't know who needs to hear that, but that's really, really important, and I'm going to say it again. God's self-worth in no way depends on our obedience. Yeah, he's God. He, He existed before time. He exists outside of time. And I'm very, very thankful that he relates to us on our level. He sent Christ as a man. He just looked like an ordinary Joe Blow. I'm sure Jesus had amazing charisma and speaking skills. You have to have amazing charisma and speaking skills to attract a crowd of thousands of people, plus women and children, and they're just sitting and listening to you all day, and they're skipping meals to listen to you talk. You have to have amazing charisma, incredible vocal projection. Also, Jesus did carpentry for like two plus decades. So dude was ripped with good reason. He went through the flogging and then he walked the cross and most people just die from the flogging. So Jesus was ripped. And he sent a humble carpenter, gentle, merciful, patient, seeing all of humanity in all of our heart issues and just giving us the little bit that we can handle day by day. That's what he did when he was here. That's what the Holy Spirit does now. That's why Jesus had to ascend so the Holy Spirit could come and be omnipresent like we need him to be. (laughs) Jesus was one man in one body and he had to spend a lot of time praying and separating himself from his disciples who got confused and he had to be patient with them. Jesus had to spend a lot of time recharging and receiving nourishment from his father so that he had the emotional energy to turn around and give it to the disciples and the people. And I mean, you think life now is hard? You try subsistence living in the Middle East before electricity and the Romans are taxing the heck out of your country. So if you're a cripple, you're depending on the mercy of others to eat. Because you can't work in the fields. 
you are a liability to society. Like, back then, people really felt that. And that's why so many folks died young, is because, you know, the strong didn't survive. Only the strong survived, and not very long. So, yeah. Don't know how I got on that tangent, but here we are. So, so God's really been challenging me on my heart attitudes. Uh, He's expanding my discernment on the heart attitudes of others, which is high-key terrifying, but uh, I know that he will empower me to bear with this greater amount of knowledge. Um, Whatever he wants to show me, I mean, it's... He's only going to give me what he can trust me with. And I know he's going to give me lots of opportunities to learn and trip and learn and trip and learn some more. And then, you know, and then when there are scenarios that come up that need the right course of action, I'll already be trained for them. And if you look in the New Testament, Paul says, you know, God disciplines us like a father that he, you know, that's part of the proof that we're his children. He says, listen, you are my kid. You're bearing my name. And you're embarrassing me by acting that way. And I want to show you how to live. So that not only can you receive my love as your father... But you can then pass that love on to others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. My name is Meg. I love my Jesus. And I believe in living inside out. Now it's your turn. Go live it.